God said, I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious. I'll have mercy to whom I'll have mercy. And Paul cites this in Romans 9. If you struggle with Romans 9, you really haven't understood Romans 1.18 through 3.20, where Paul labored to show there is none righteous, not even one. There's none who seeks for God. What do we deserve? Judgment. That's what we deserve. Even though they knew God, they didn't honor Him as God or give thanks. They turned away from Him and exchanged the glory of God for an image, the form of corruptible man, and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. That's what man is. That's what you and I are. But God, in amazing mercy and grace, saves. Welcome to Downtown Bible Class with Pastor Scott Gilchrist. Today we continue in our study of the book of Romans. Pastor Scott brings part two of a message titled, A Righteous God and a Savior. We invite you to follow along with us now as we get started. The more you and I understand God's sovereignty, the more we will see of God's mercy and His compassion, and we will glorify Him for His sovereign, His free, caused by nothing outside Himself, mercy to sinners. Now, turn back there, Exodus 32. Take a look at it because uh, Paul is writing to people who knew the Bible, or at least he certainly knew it and expected them to. And as I said, he quotes it repeatedly in these chapters. And we want to look at uh, Exodus 32 and 33 briefly because he underlines, he underscores two very important truths for us, uh, Israel's sinfulness and God's glory in freely bestowing His mercy. But let's pick it up. I think you know the situation. If you don't, you'll catch on to it pretty quickly because it's a famous chapter in Israel's history. Now, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, Moses had gone up on the mountain for 40 days. And we're told that Israel, the sons of Israel, couldn't get near the mountain, but they could see the glory of the Lord up at the top of the mountain as a consuming fire. But when he delayed to come down, the people assembled about Aaron and said to him, Come, make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. Make us a God. You know, Israel was tempted to not like the one and only true God. He was leaving them alone for too long. He he was too distant from them. And so what'd they do? Well, made their own God. A lot of people do that today. You're tempted to do that today. If you don't like the God of Romans 9, if even as I've said some of the things that I've been telling you about the one and only true God, you've gone, well, you can make your own God. Go ahead. They did. People do it all the time. My God isn't like that. So they make their own God. If you don't like the sovereign God, the God who freely bestows mercy, you can make your own God. That's what Israel did. You don't like the God of Romans 9, 6 through 13. How could he choose Abraham or Isaac or Jacob? How could, how could, well, just make your own God then. Come, make us a God who will go before us. Now, the Lord had been doing that. The Lord had been doing that. 
I read in Exodus 13, the Lord was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them on the way and in a pillar of fire by night to give them light. The Lord had been doing that, but they wanted their own God to go before them. And Aaron said to them, tear off the rings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. Then all the people tore off the gold rings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he took this from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, this is your God, O Israel, who's brought you up from the land of Egypt. You can go ahead and make a God if you want. You'd be a fool. I mean it. You make a God other than the one true God, and you're going to have a little golden calf. How ridiculous to make this calf and say, this is your God. This is what brought you out of Egypt. And how man-centered, too. You know, they said, what, make us a God who will go before us. Because as for this man, Moses, as if Moses had led them out of Egypt. But, you know, you start getting your eyes off the one and only true God, and we live in a culture today that is very man-centered and wants to find a human explanation for everything. How was it that Moses was able to lead these... Uh, a runaway slave who came back. I mean, how did this work? And we're always into man, figuring out what... And uh, we've got a lot of little golden calves floating around, and it's a, it's a shame to exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image. But that's what Israel did. That's what Israel did. You want your own God? You'll have an impotent God. You'll have a ridiculous God. That's what you'll have. But that's what Israel did. And I'll tell you, now, uh, and you know, it wasn't just the people, it was the leaders. Aaron, Aaron was involved. Now, when Aaron saw this, verse 5, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. You know, false religion nearly always involves itself in syncretism. He says, we'll make it a feast to who? Well, the Lord. He'll still bring in the right lingo if he can. So the next day they rose early and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. Oh, what a picture of today. A lot of people in Christendom, in churches, call themselves Christians, would still talk about the Lord and involved in idolatry. They've made up their own God and immorality, they rose up to play. And these twin evils always go together, and we've got a culture that calls itself Christian permeated with idolatry on the one hand and immorality on the other, and yet still yakking about the Lord. I heard, just as I drove over here this morning, I turned the radio on and whatever station it was on, you know, I recognized the voice. I know, you'd know the entertainer. I know his lifestyle. And he was singing about the Lord. And I thought, what a picture of Exodus 32. Lead me, Lord, he sang. And I thought, yeah. And I thought of his lifestyle. And, you know, you see it all around you. Well, Moses returns to this wicked scene. All Israel, 
bowing before this golden calf. Verse 19, it came about as soon as Moses came near the camp that he saw the calf when he came down and the dancing and Moses' anger burned and he threw the tablets from his hands and shattered them at the foot of the mountain and he took the calf which they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it over the surface of the water and made the sons of Israel drink it. Moses saw it for what it was, a great sin. And you'll see that repeated through this chapter. A great wickedness, a great sin. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you've brought such great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Don't let the anger, my Lord, burn. You know the people yourself, that they're prone to evil. They said to me, make a God for us who will go before us. For this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. And I said to them, well, whoever has any gold, let them tear it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. <laughs> what a picture of man. And by the way, did you notice he told a lot of truth there? Well, you know the people. They're prone to this sort of thing. Yeah, they are. And uh, they, they said to us, they said, come make us... He just about quotes them verbatim. He got it right. He said everything truthfully, and right down to where I told them to tear off their earrings. And then I just threw it in, and out came this calf. We didn't have anything to do with it. Oh, yes, you did, Aaron. We didn't have anything to do with the dilemma we're in. Oh, yes, we did. Sin isn't our problem. Oh, yes, it is. Don't you make excuses. What a fraud, you know, as you read this. You just, Moses in righteous indignation and Aaron just saying, well, it just kind of happened. And people today, well, how do we get in this dilemma? We're just victims. We deserve better. How can God not? Oh, don't think that way. Don't talk that way. Well, you know the rest of the chapter, but look over chapter 33. We're working our way to what we, the text that Moses is cited here in Romans 9 to see God's glory. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you brought up from the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your descendants I will give it, and I'll send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites and the rest of them. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst. The holy righteous God can't put up with this kind of iniquity. He says, I'll send an angel. Because you're an obstinate people, lest I destroy you on the way. When the people heard this sad word, they went into mourning, and none of them put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the sons of Israel, You're an obstinate people. Should I go up in your midst for one moment, I would destroy you. Now therefore put off your ornaments from you, that I may know what I will do with you. So the sons of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. God said, I'll have to send an angel to lead you. I can't go with you. Get those ornaments off. How about a little mourning here for your sin? And so they did, and they were realizing a little bit. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, verse 7, a good distance from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And it came about that everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Did you realize this is the context for that? Just about the time when you think there's no hope. The tent of meeting is pitched outside the camp. 
And it came about whenever Moses went out to the tent that all the people would arise and stand, each at the entrance of his tent, and gaze after Moses until he entered the tent. And it came about whenever Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. When all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would arise and worship each at the entrance of his tent. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, just as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses returned to the camp, his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Oh, what a picture of a man in fellowship with God, speaking to God face to face as a man speaks with his friend, and this hope that there is a place of meeting, a tent of meeting. Then Moses said, verse 12, to the Lord, See, thou dost say to me, Bring up this people, but thou thyself hast not let me know whom thou wilt send with me. Moreover, thou hast said, I have known you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, I pray thee, if I have found favor in thy sight, let me know thy ways, that I may know thee. Oh, Father, let me know thy ways. You know, the 103rd Psalm says, the Lord made known his ways to Moses. Moses prayed, let me know thy ways. Oh, Lord, I want to know you so that I may find grace in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence shall go with you, and I'll give you rest. Oh, that almost sounds New Testament, doesn't it? Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. My presence will go with you. And now Moses is emboldened, verse 15. Then he said to him, If thy presence doesn't go with us, don't lead us up from here. For how then can it be known that I've found grace, favor in thy sight? I and thy people, is it not by thy going with us? So that we, I and thy people, may be distinguished from the other people who are upon the face of the earth. You said you'd be our God, Father. How will they know that we're different, that we're yours, that you're ours? If you don't go with us, we can't even go. And the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing of which you have spoken, for you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. Oh, the grace of God on guilty Israel, sinful, wicked, great sin, but God gracious, gracious and says, I'll go with you. I'll give you rest. Well, then Moses, I mean, you talk about an audacious request. Look at verse 18. Then Moses said, I pray thee, show me thy glory. I ask you, Lord, show me thy glory. And God said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. The name of the Lord is the character of the Lord. The name in the Old Testament and the New Testament, by the way, is the very expression of God. His name is wonderful. And he says, I'll show you, I'll proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. Show me your glory, Lord. And he says, I'll show you who I am. I'll show you my name. 
I'll be gracious on whom I'll be gracious. I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. You know what? The glory of the Lord, the character of the Lord, His very glorious nature is made known in His sovereign, free dispensing of His mercy and compassion. I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. I'll be gracious to whom I will be gracious. You see, God was shut up to His mercy. I speak reverently when I say this. If God was going to save anybody in Israel, He had to save by grace. He had to save in and of Himself, not because Israel was worth it or worthy. Israel was bowing down to a golden calf. And God said, I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious. I'll have mercy to whom I'll have mercy. And Paul cites this in Romans 9, verse 15. You know, today is no different. Jew, Gentile alike. I don't care what your background is ethnically. I don't care what your parentage was or is. I don't care what you've done. God doesn't save according to works, and He doesn't save according to parentage. He doesn't save according to ethnic background. He saves by grace. If you struggle with Romans 9, you really haven't understood Romans 1.18 through 3.20, where Paul labored to show there is none righteous, not even one. There's none who seeks for God. What do we deserve? Judgment. That's what we deserve. Even though they knew God, they didn't honor Him as God or give thanks. They turned away from Him and exchanged the glory of God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. That's what man is. That's what you and I are. But God, in amazing mercy and grace, saves. The wages of sin is death. And the Bible says that we've all sinned and fall short of His glory. We haven't honored His glory. We're sinners. But the free gift of God, free, we didn't deserve it. We can't earn it. He just gave this free gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul wrote to Timothy when he was on death row at the end of his life. He said, God who saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was granted us from all eternity. That's how we're saved. Uh, the Scripture teaches it all the way through. You see, Ephesians 2 says, We were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to Satan, basically, and he goes on and describes it. But, verse 4, God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. Not as a result of works. Now look back at Romans 9 and remember what Paul cites when he cites this and notice someone says, there's injustice with God. May it never be. God has mercy and mercy by definition is undeserved and he has mercy on whom he will and he has compassion on whom he will. And then he states the great principle, verse 16. So then, it doesn't depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, 
but on God who has mercy. The natural man dreams that he can somehow will and decide and then run and do. And God says it doesn't depend on man's willing or man's running. It depends on God who has mercy. To will is that desire. And God says we don't have that desire. There's none who seek me. And to run is to perform. And God says there's none who do. There's no, now, don't misunderstand this. It's not that man isn't responsible. Man should will. <laughs> and man should run. He just doesn't. There's none who do. So God, in amazing grace, gets hold of those who don't run and don't will, those who don't honor Him, and saves anyway. Now, Paul doesn't leave it there. He's going to address the next question. What about those whom God doesn't show mercy on? And he brings up Pharaoh whom God didn't show mercy to. We're going to leave it there because we're out of time. But we'll pick it up next time, and we're going to look at the other side of this. God is righteous in showing mercy. That's the marvel of it, and that's what Romans 3 labored to explain because Jesus Christ paid the penalty. He, the just one, laid his life down for us, the unjust. The sinless one died for the sinful so that God might be righteous might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And that's what we're going to celebrate as we come around this table. And next week we'll look at why God is righteous in judging judgment-deserving sinners, even as He's righteous in mercifully saving on the basis of the cross of Jesus Christ. Rejoice, Christian. The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice, the psalmist says. You know, it seems to me, what should be our response? I know that uh, as we look at this, our hearts are touched by the mercy of God. What should be our response? It should be praise. Let me read to you. You don't need to turn there. But I quoted as I opened the 135th Psalm, where we're told, whatever the Lord pleases, He does. In heaven and earth and in the seas and in all deeps. But listen to how He sets that up. Because when you think on that, when you marvel that whatever God does, He pleases, and God chose from all eternity to save you, Christian. Those whom He foreknew, He also predestined, and whom He predestined, these He also called, and whom He called, these He also justified, and whom He justified, these He also glorified. When you marvel at this, that's just what you do. You marvel, and you say, as the psalmist said, praise the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Praise Him, O servants of the Lord. You who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God, praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing praises to His name, for it is lovely. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for Himself, Israel for His own possession. For I know that the Lord is great, and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven and in earth and in the sea and in all deeps. Oh, praise the Lord with humility. Not to us, not to us, O Lord, but to thy name give glory. That's how the 115th Psalm starts. And that's where he says, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Both these Psalms just say, praise God with humility. Praise God with confidence, Christian. It doesn't depend on you. It doesn't depend on the man who wills or the man who runs. It depends on God who has mercy. And we can bask in His grace, and we should. And we did in Romans 8, 28, 29, and 30, as He stated this in a more personal way. 
for those who are called according to his purpose and praise him with gratitude. You've been listening to Downtown Bible Class with Pastor Scott Gilchrist. Please stay with us. Pastor Scott will return in just a moment with a preview of our next broadcast. Today's program was titled, A Righteous God and a Savior, a message from our series in the Book of Romans. If you missed a portion of the message heard on the program today or you'd like to share it with a friend, head on over to downtownbible.org. A free copy of today's entire message is available there for you to stream or download at your convenience. We're thrilled to announce the publication of a new book written by Pastor Scott Gilchrist. It's called A Brief Exposition of Romans. It's a 266-page chapter-by-chapter commentary on Romans that we're sure will enhance your understanding of this critical book in the New Testament. The book is available online at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and most other online booksellers. But during our study of Romans, we'd like to send you a copy as a thank you for a gift of any amount to the Ministry of Downtown Bible. You can find us online at downtownbible.org or by mail at P.O. Box 19191, Portland, Oregon, 97280. We'd love to put this valuable resource in your hands. Downtown Bible only remains on the air through the generous contributions of listeners like you. We'd like to ask you to prayerfully consider partnering with us on a regular basis to help us meet our day-to-day expenses. Now, before we end our time today, let's go to Pastor Scott for a preview of our next broadcast. In the Scripture, unrighteousness isn't just the opposite of righteousness. Unrighteousness is contrasted with truth. Let me show you. Turn to chapter 1, verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The contrast here isn't with righteousness as such. It's with truth. Unrighteousness is a lie. Okay, it's contrasted with truth. Look at chapter 2, verse 8. But to those, and he's speaking of God's principles of judgment, he says, to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey what? Unrighteousness. Again, the contrast with truth. Join us again next time as we continue our series through the book of Romans. Pastor Scott brings part three of the message titled, A Righteous God and a Savior. Until then, may the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you.